Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to Eastern Border, this time from Riga. I have some interesting news and uh, some happy and some not-so-happy ones. I'll start with the fact that uh, Delphi LV, the Latvian side that had hosted my Latvian podcast for a while, decided to, well, end the contract without ever paying me for anything I've done there and just cancel me and all the other indie podcasters in Latvian and just focus on their own professionally in-house produced stuff. Well, good luck to them, I guess. More time to do uh, work on my English version of the podcast. It's going to be great. At any rate, talking about the happy news... Well, uh, our glorious, glorious man, uh, the man, the legend himself, Ramzan Kadyrov, apparently is now in Moscow. He was flown there as an emergency. Around 50% of his lungs is damaged, according to Echo Moskvi. Because the guy who has built concentration camps and is generally considered one of the worst people on the planet has now caught coronavirus. And his status, as of today, 25th of March, is considered to be extremely heavy and, well, difficult. He had done um, some crazy stuff before. In April, he had performed stunts such as donning a yellow jumpsuit to visit the hospital treating coronavirus patients, or shaving his head after being asked to reopen local barber shops. Uh, by the way, that head shaving thing, yeah, other Chechen officials soon followed suit, and people who refused to shave their heads, the men, obviously, yeah, they were uh, considered branded to be regime's enemies and were harassed on the streets. Also, Ramzan Kadyrov had previously stated that the Chechen people are super tough, and those who are about to die, well, they should die anyways, and no one should care. Well, apparently, he's, um, he's now got his own stuff. He also had attacked the newspaper Novaya Gazeta, one of the biggest independent newspapers in Russia, after a reporter wrote that the region's measures to isolate those suspected of being infected were so severe that some were hiding from the police. Because Ramzan Kadyrov in Chechnya, he had enforced the self-isolation regime of Putin's, except that his methods of containing people at home were... Uh, somewhat similar that you would expect from him or some very authoritarian countries. He had literally given his um, goons, not the police, his own like private army, which runs the security there, basically um, maces and like PVC sticks and just send them out to beat people on the streets because they're on the streets. Yeah, so in Chechnya, random Kadyrov's goons beat up people who were on the street for ignoring COVID. And that was like a week after he said that COVID's not important and that, you know, whatever. Then people started getting ill, then he started beating people up. Awesome. But yeah, he was like oscillating from this macho posturing, telling Chechens not to fear disease in late March, to brutally enforcing one of the toughest quartet regimes, at least on, um, on paper. But yeah, Chechnya has uh, stood out in the North Caucasus during the coronavirus epidemic for its very low reported number of deaths. In neighboring Dagestan... Deaths from COVID and pneumonia are thought to have passed 700. And the situation there in Dagestan, which is like right next door to it, was so severe that even their uh, local prime minister came out and stated that the situation is just extremely terrible. Because and the government has been like 
not reporting anything. But we'll get to that in a second. There are protests by doctors because apparently out of many people who are dying there, the doctors are on the front lines in Russia and, well, they're forced to work uh, overtimes being understaffed and undermanned and, well, they don't get any extra pay and that extra vulnerable to this disease. So now the death rate is increasing because the doctors are leaving hospitals as nobody cared to pay them out there. Putin's promised premiums and in many regions the governors openly stated that, hey, Putin has promised you extra payment, let him deliver it. So some of the doctors have just, well, quit their jobs. Others, well, literally have died and none of them are allowed to speak about it. Because, well, some permission to die is being rejected. Let's talk about some inflated statistics now. On May 11th, Vladimir Putin ostensibly brought an end to Russia's self-isolation, non-working days. Obviously, putting away all responsibility to regional leaders, and uh, they are on paper responsible for using epidemiological statistics to determine exactly when and how to lift measures imposed to, well, try to contain the spread of COVID. And uh, it's interesting because there's a new political joke running around Russia stating that, well, we got on lockdown when there were 1,000 cases per day. Now that we've hit 10,000 cases per day, it's time to open. Yeah, fun times. The same day that the president ostensibly reopened the nation, Deputy Prime Minister Tatyana Golikova proudly announced that COVID-19's lethality is in Russia is 7.4 times below the global average, which is obviously, obviously not true. And uh, a lot of attention of this has been called into the mainstream Anglophone media, which have concluded that the problem lies within the mythology that Russia uses to count deaths. Because in Russia, if you, for example, have heart issues, and then you get COVID, and then you die from heart issues, no one's going to report that you have COVID. But that's only part of the problem. The problem is that that would be the reasonable thing. Oh, it's just a statistics error or something. But it's Russia we're talking about. They really are enforcing a kind of a low-level thing so that people wouldn't think that it's as dangerous as this. Doctors and demographers have told many opposition journals that when morgues started overflowing <laughs> and uh, that, that there are some shots for pathologists about how to write this all down and how federal statistics on deaths and infections missed an entire city of nuclear physicists. In Russia, official numbers indicate that fewer than one in every 100 confirmed COVID-19 cases results in death. Whereas disease has proved fatal in between 1.5 and 16 of every 100 cases elsewhere in Europe. State authorities have argued that Russia's low coronavirus mortality rate is because of the country's high quality of healthcare. Uh, let me remind you that this high quality means that literally 17% of Russia's hospitals don't even have proper toilets and sanitation. Uh, a lot of them are in critical condition, and uh, many still even don't have running water. So, again, constant pakazocha. They need to pretend to be more awesome than we actually are. Sources in the Moscow mayor's office also say Russian pathologists are particularly scrupulous and, unlike their Western colleagues, are required to perform autopsies on each patient, which allows them to distinguish between deaths caused by COVID-19 and deaths accompanied by COVID-19. But, but obviously some of these pathologists who spoke to various media sources, however, state that they are under strict instructions from Russia's health ministry and encouraged by their own hospital's chief physicians to attribute the deaths of coronavirus patients to other causes. 
demographers studying Russian healthcare statistics say they are confident that mortality data are being manipulated deliberately, which distorts both the public's and, well, everyone's understanding on what's happening on the ground in Russia. These distortions are basically really nothing new if you know Soviet history on anything that's going on in Russia. Massaging federal health statistics, and massaging is a nice little Russian word of uh, slightly influencing them, it has been a common practice in Russia since Vladimir Putin's May 2012 orders when the president instructed regional officials to reduce certain diseases' mortality rates. They uh, also are in firm denial of a massive AIDS epidemic in Russia, which has been a major concern for a lot of humanitarian groups, but, um, well, for one, the Russian Orthodox Church uh, clearly states that AIDS is not real, and it's an unpopular disease to talk about, so none of the official health people, health people responsible for health in the government, have actually come out and spoken about it. The authorities are, uh, the main regions of Russia, are now relying on basically same tricks that they used before to um, mm, fudge up the numbers on the COVID deaths. A series of 11 executive orders signed by Putin on May 7, 2012, the day he began his third non-consecutive presidential term, these contain 218 separate instructions for the government to be implemented between 2012 and 2020, including targets for reducing the lethality of cardiovascular diseases, cancer, tuberculosis, traffic collisions, and infant mortality. In 2018, researchers from the Russian Presidential Academy of National Academy and Public Administration under the President of the Russian Federation, yeah, that's the full, full name, but uh, let's shorten it to RANEPA, which is how it's called, confirmed that statistics indeed did show a drop in deaths among Russians diagnosed with diseases identified in Putin's May orders. When calculating coronavirus deaths, Russian statistics also include errors that, um... As usual, no bureaucratic logic can explain. This, for instance, is how an entire city disappeared from Nizhny Novgorod's regional data. On May 11th, the city of Sarov reported its first COVID-19 fatality, but the death was never reflected in regional statistics because the city is one of the closed cities where uh, military personnel work and uh, it is reserved for nuclear physicists only, was removed from general coronavirus calculations on what appeared to be official orders from the national authorities. Because, yeah, many of these closed cities are not included in regional data. Russia's army is not included in the regional data. Nothing really gets included anywhere because everything can be a state secret. It only gets reported when it gets really bad, such as when a cadet school in St. Petersburg reported that out of their 5,000 students, 3,000 got COVID, which totally is unrelated to them practicing their massive parade for the 9th of May celebrations, and this cannot be in any way connected to each other, right? And um, since May the 1st, due to changes in the verification mythology, the city of Sarov is not reflected in Nizhny Novgorod regional data, which is just awesome. The caveat in small print, which is under their statistics, started appearing on state infographics only in May, but the lieutenant governor's reports on COVID-19 started diverging from Sarov's own numbers way back in April. For example, on April the 30th, Melik Gushenov still referred to 43 coronavirus patients in Sarov, though the city's number of confirmed cases had already reached 55. In just three days, the Nizhny Novgorod region has fallen from the 20th to the 24th place in regional rankings of infections per 100,000 people. The lieutenant governor after their nice little changes of literally throwing out cities from the region where they're located, rejoiced on social media. What an amazing job. Reports about the spread of coronavirus in Sarov are apparently absent altogether from all federal data, 
The government-run website StopCoronavirus.rf has not registered any new cases in Sarov since the start of May. The website duplicates the official numbers supplied by Nizhny Novgorod's regional government, which excludes the information reported in the closed city of Sarov. And this is just amazing. So, um, under the condition of anonymity, uh, a woman living in Sarov, which is, a, like I said, the closed city, told to Medusa, quote, They only added this footnote about whatever methodology excluding Sarov after people started asking questions. They say it's because our hospitals are part of FMBA, Federal Medical and Biological Agency, and the figures are counted there. But where are the figures? There are no figures anywhere. Which is just quite crazy. And I'm talking about this closed city here just to bring you a nice little example, because uh, Russia is filled with these so-called closed cities, and they are very worried about enemies learning their state secrets. It's uh, Brendan from the Soviet era, which is, quite honestly, biting them in the back. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. But, yet again, talking about the stuff Putin has promised and what he has done. Like I said, he promised um, extra payment for medical personnel. Doctors and mid-level and junior medical personnel, according to Putin, should have received between 15,000 and 40,000 rubles, which is approximately 183 euros and 495 euros for a two-week shift. Those working with COVID patients would receive between 20,000 and 60,000 rubles, approximately 250 euros and 750 euros for a two-week shift. Social workers and teachers were supposed to receive 25,000 rubles each, around uh, 315 euros, while those working with COVID patients would receive 35,000 rubles each, which is 435 euros. That's what um, they were promised. Furthermore, the minimum childcare allowance, which is just paid for having kids, was raised to 6,751 rubles, about 82 euros. All families with at least one child under the age of three, according to his latest statement, will receive payments up to 15,000 rubles, uh, that's 183 euros, in installments of 5,000 rubles per month. Every family is also eligible for a one-time payment of 10,000 rubles, roughly 125 euros, for each child between the ages of three and 15 years old. The problem is, these payments have been promptly ignored, lowered, and uh, utterly ignored completely by the governors, and there are massive amounts of YouTube videos of doctors and social workers and ambulance people just protesting and stating the fact that they have received, well, nothing. Furthermore, uh, because this hasn't really been written in any order, Putin just stated that in his uh, TV stuff that he's been doing from his secure bunker. The thing is that in some regions, um, these payments are sort of happening, but they happen in a way that uh, if you work as a medical worker out of your eight-hour shift for, say, two hours, then you get only the payment in addition to anything for the very specific hours to the minutes even 
that you have actually worked with the COVID patients. And yeah, companies from the most affected industries, as well as socially oriented NGOs, would be able to receive a loan up to six months worth of minimum wage for each of their employees. Which really didn't happen as the Minister of Finance just um, started calling up banks and incognito and got no loans. So, everyone's out of money. Everyone's completely out of money. Although Putin is just posting stuff on TV, nothing is really happening. Meanwhile, what is happening is the fact that they are also changing electoral laws. Just, well, in three readings in one day, full approval, no debates. As recently, Russia's state Duma adopted four laws pertaining to elections. Two of them fall under a single title, on amending certain legislative acts of the Russian Federation. The most important provisions, however, were just tacked on during the second reading, uh, which has already become a tradition there. A bill about one thing is adopted in the first reading, but during the second reading... It's transformed and sometimes beyond recognition. Besides these that I'm speaking about today, uh, there's another law just happened today as I was researching this and recording, and uh, there have been changes, they have presented laws in the Gosduma which refer to articles of the Constitution that do not yet exist. They refer to the articles in Constitution that are in the Putin's new Constitution, which hasn't even been voted for, but not like anyone cares in Russia about such thing as electorate or popular opinion or anything like that. And this is kind of a crazy. But the new electoral laws allow elections to become even more of a sham, and uh, many competent people state that this basically cancels out even any pretense of electoral honesty, because it just allows for even easier sham votes to be cast everywhere. First of all, Voting by mail can be introduced in any elections. Russia's Central Election Commission, the federal one, was given the right to introduce voting by mail in any given election whatsoever. It's not an entirely new provision for Russian legislation. It was actually kind of introduced in 2012. But at the time, it was just an optional provision and didn't really pass. This is kind of crazy. The new law differs from the previous one in three ways. First and foremost, the Central Electoral Committee, the CEC, is responsible for making the decision on holding elections by mail, not the regional legislators, and remind you, Russia is a federation. Although this innovation is presented as a response to the pandemic, the law does not bind CEC, their organization that runs elections, to any conditions whatsoever. The second difference is seemingly minor. The 2002 norms provided the CEC with the authority to determine the procedure for postal voting temporarily until the issue is resolved by federal law. Now they've dropped that idea out. Their electoral committee's authority appears to be just, well, permanent. The third difference is the removal of the restriction according to which only votes received no later than the end of the voting period are counted. This presents a serious dilemma. Do the people who count the ballots wait until all the ballots from voters arrive, or count only the votes that arrive before the end of the voting period? In the first instance, it's unclear how long officials should delay the counting process. In the latter, a situation arises in which the realization of citizens' right to vote depends on the good work of the Russian Postal Office, which is phenomenally infamous for just not working correctly. Now, this is kind of interesting because postal voting is relatively common in other countries, but their postal systems are way more reliable. However, even this does not prevent scandals from taking place periodically. One of the main problems is maintaining the secrecy of the ballot. In this case, double envelopes are usually used. The outer envelope has an address, which is used to identify the voter, as well as an invitation to vote. There should be no identifying material inside the inner envelope. But, okay, so, 
Previously, the people had to drive around and be driven around in massive buses for election fraud. Now they can just pretend to have this. But we have a nice example about how postal voting works, at least in the EU. And I'll talk about Germany, because that's a bigger thing here. In Germany, postal voting is quite a large, quite a large thing, and a lot of people vote there, even though their uh, human rights organizations also kind of state that it's troublesome. Well, it's actually pretty safe by all the standards. The thing is that separate polling stations are set up for processing those postal ballots, and you cannot go and vote in these stations, only counting happens in those ones. And the results for each site are also published, therefore anyone can compare the results of the vote for regular and mail-in participants. Which obviously will not happen in Russia. Second thing, electronic voting can also turn up anywhere. According to the new law, the famous CEC will be able to introduce internet voting in any elections. And yeah, although Estonia has electronic voting, there are some issues with this. See, Russia's first experiment with remote electronic voting, if you've listened to my show, you know I spoke about this, uh, like, last year, took place in Moscow in 2019. Even though its organizers cheerfully reported on its success, as they do with everything, a lot of experts deemed it a failure. In Moscow's 30th district, for example, the authorities' candidate, Margarita Rustetskaya, lost to the opposition candidate, Roman Yuneman, at regular polling stations, but she received 1,120 electronic votes, while he received just 445. As a result, she outstripped our opposition candidate by 84 votes at the very last second, because they all came in super late. And uh, yeah, that happened after the electronic voting system froze and did not allow everyone who wanted to vote to actually do that. Voting in Moscow took place on the mayor's official platform, but the CEC has been trying to establish its own system, meaning subtle competition is underway, away from anyone who might look at that. This is perhaps why the Duma adopted the two laws at once. One is intended to continue the experiment in Moscow, while the other one gives our nice little electoral committee, whose new task, I presume, is basically to ensure that people definitely never vote in any other way than uh, the government intends for them to vote in any other elections. But there's, like, no rush to do anything else in any other country, because there's a lot of issues with electronic voting, hacking being the most minor one. Because you have to rely on people uh, who are actually administering this stuff, because, again, the temptation to correct the results of remote electronic voting might be too great. Or it might be enforced, if uh, we're talking about Russia in this case. One other thing that was changed uh, super recently is the fact that signatures for candidate nominations can now be submitted through their governmental services agency. Now, that sounds okay, but um, about these signatures, like I've mentioned previously in my uh, previous episodes, in Russia there's this system that you can only run as a candidate if you receive enough signatures, authorized signatures with passport date and everything from your supporters, but that only applies for parties who are not elected in Gosduma, which is basically a stopgap measure for opposition candidates. And some candidates who wish to run as independents, because the United Russia, Putin's party, has been losing popularity, and in previous Moscow city council elections, a lot of people, basically everyone from United Russia, decided to run as independents, so they also had to get these signatures. And it's kind of hard to fraud them, you know, even though they did a lot. But yeah, for many years, experts people who are reasonable in Russia, advocated collecting voter signatures through the governmental portal Gosuslugi, literally governmental services. Lawmakers initially ignored these suggestions, and then they decided to adopt them, right now, but in a form that's very, very um, common uh, these days in modern Putin's Russia, that is totally ignoring all the sense that they made. 
See, Electronic Signature Collection will be introduced in regional elections only. This possibility has not been provided for either the big elections to the State Duma, including supplementary elections, or the small municipal elections. Of course, the majority of, well, municipal elections require the collection of a small number of signatures, but there are also large cities. In Russia, there are 13 cities in the size of over 1 million people. However, this is only well, the regional elections where regional lawmakers permit it. The main restriction is that it is impossible to collect all of the required number of signatures in electronic form. Regional law should outline some limits, but no more than half of the required number should be collected online. Well, why? Because they try to justify to the CEC that not all voters use this portal. And that's kind of true, because according to data, approximately 20% of all Russians don't even know what internet is. And this is a misleading explanation. The policy should they favor candidates. If they can collect a sufficient number of signatures in electronic form, why not give them this opportunity? And yeah, this idea of electronic signature collection was thought up to kill two birds with one stone. On one hand, it presents the opportunity to fake signatures. On the other, it does not allow for signatures to be rejected arbitrarily. However, the restriction of no more than half of the signatures being electronic just spoils and ruins and destroys every sense that this project could ever had. Election commissions still have the opportunity to reject signatures collected on paper, and it's hardly accidental that in the same law the allowable share of discarded signatures was cut in half, from 10% to 5%. That means that one needs half as many signatures collected in paper form, but an equally smaller number will have to be discarded to just deny them any chances of, you know, actually run as a candidate. In addition, they came up with this genius idea, and if you know something about uh, politics, like this, this is gonna stun you a bit. And this is just, just uh, truly uh, a nice little uh, breach of any common sense. The idea is that now, a voter should personally provide not only a signature and a date, but also their first name, last name, and patronymic. This is so handwriting experts, who are still not required to provide any justification or take any responsibility for their conclusions, have additional opportunities for arbitrary rejections of literally anything that they want. Previously, monitors relied mostly on the dates listed in candidate endorsements. The signatures themselves were rarely recognized as fake, but their incompetence in this area was so apparent in the last summer's Moscow City Duma elections that just everyone in the opposition just waved their hands and massive protests happened. And now these officials have a new assignment. Focus on surnames, first names and patronymics recorded by third parties. And uh, expert control, well, last time they basically relied on people believing that the system works. But until this happens, everyone just can go utterly crazy. But, you see... <laughs> Through all this madness and Putin sitting in the bunker, well, Putin's rating has been slipping. I wanted to speak about how Bloomberg um, wrote an article about this and I was like trying to praise them because, hey, it's Bloomberg and they actually, you know, write something about Rush, which is accurate. And this is interesting because these news got even crazier. See, Russia has demanded an apology from the Bloomberg news agency over a report that it published about these ratings. The embassy in DC said on a post on Facebook that the article by Bloomberg was, quote, written to promote fake graphs and create sustainable false visual images about the negative dynamics in Russia. The problem is, the problem is, Bloomberg in their article used um, a poll run by official Russian statistical agency, the All-Russian Public Opinion Research Center, or Tsiom. So they yelled at people for using Russian statistics for being, like, crazy. The embassy, however, despite this weird announcement, 
stated that, quote, the editors of Bloomberg continue to show complete disrespect for its readers since the real level of trust is 67.9%. That is um, total nonsense, but it's still funny because, well, they have to say something there, obviously. They have to basically continue on just blasting things and pretend that everything is okay because... As in any kleptocracy, these elites running the whole country, they, they um, unlike in the United States or any other normal country, they cannot just leave office and remain wealthy. As it's basically a criminal organization now, they're, we're talking here about their physical existence now. Because as soon as Putin leaves power or, or something else happens and, and some power changes in Russia, yeah, they are, they, they'll suffer from a critical existence failure. Which is actually quite interesting because, well, we, next to the Russia, if Russia collapses, are actually going to be in a lot of trouble. And this brings us back to Ramzan Kadyrov's case. Because every Russian uh, politician who's way worth his way in salt, every one of these oligarchs and main leaders among which Ramzan Kadyrov is counted, normally are treated in Switzerland or Germany or, well, they just go to any European country for their own healthcare. Because Russian hospitals are, let's be honest, in a really poor state. The fact that Ramzan Kadyrov was brought to Moscow for being healed and cured from coronavirus is also quite suspicious. Because also he just stated that in a recent interview that Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, which he rules over with an iron fist, has the best hospitals and they're super prepared to treat COVID. And he wasn't sent off to Europe either. So obviously there are conspiracy theories about someone trying to deal with Kadyrov. Which are interesting, and I would like to see if he actually survives this, because, well, let's be honest here, Ramzan Kadyrov is only loyal to Putin because he receives personal payments and is allowed to run Chechnya like a little Tsardom and gets a bunch of money. That's going to be a bit interesting. But so far, everyone in Russia has to pretend that stuff is okay. Well, let's see how this pans out, but for now, for now this is going to be it. In the following few days, you're going to get the first Russian Alaska episode, when I'll get home to Riga. And uh, then I have something a bit special, uh, more people's stories for you at the very end of the month or maybe early next month. But yeah, so far, enjoy the utter insanity and, well, stay a bit happier knowing that at least you live in a country where maybe not as much as you would want, but at least government is somewhat taking care of you. Do svidanya, tovarish. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void.